Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about Jing Shengtan, literary critic. On this podcast, we've previously talked about the influence of early 20th century intellectuals such as Hu Shi. Hu Shi and his generation of public intellectuals made it okay for us all to write plainly using the everyday language known as bai hua, or plain speak, rather than the traditionally obligatory classical Chinese. And they taught us all to appreciate the major works of Chinese fiction, which in centuries past were not considered respectable, but are now deemed some of the greatest heights ever summited in Chinese literature. In talking thus about early 20th century Chinese intellectuals, though, we have shortchanged one important figure who was their great predecessor. Today, we're going to rectify this injustice and pay this man his due. Today, we're going to talk about the transformative literary critic Jing Shengtan. Jing Shengtan belonged to that notable generation of Chinese intelligentsia who were born into and maybe grew up during the last decades of the Ming Dynasty, but lived into the succeeding invader regime, the Qing Dynasty. Specifically, he was born in 1608, or the 36th year of the reign of Emperor Wanli of the Ming, and he died in 1661 or the 18th year of the reign of Emperor Shunzhi of the Qing. There's a whole thing about how he died, which we'll get to. For this generation of Chinese intellectuals, one difficult question hung over all of them, the question of loyalty. They were educated under the Ming, and according to traditional ethics, owed the Ming dynasty their loyalty. So, they ought not to serve the succeeding Qing government. At the same time, the path that educated men were supposed to take in traditional China was the path of officialdom. If they couldn't ethically deploy their education in the arena it was meant for, then what could they do? Many of them turned their learning toward private artistic pursuits, to painting and poetry and so on. Apropos of the strange but legendary figure Jing Shengtan cuts on the Chinese literary scene, not only was he not originally named Jing Shengtan, but I guess we're not sure what his real name was. Some sources tell us he wasn't even surnamed Jing, but was born Zhang Cai. Others say that this was not true. Instead, he was born Jing Renrui, so at least surnamed Jing, and was also known as Jing Cai. At some point, he adopted the name Jing Shengtan. Jing, the surname, okay. Sheng, meaning the sage, and Tan, to sigh. It comes from a story about Confucius, the sage, in which 
he sighed upon being particularly impressed with a notable student. In other words, Jing Shengtan was saying that if Confucius could see him, he would sigh upon being so incredibly impressed by him. So we're not sure about his real name. We do know for sure that he was from the city of Suzhou in the Yangtze Delta area, which was historically and still is today one of the wealthiest and most cultured parts of China. Jing Shengtan did not come from a wealthy family, though, just the opposite. At the age of nine, he entered school and studied the books he was meant to study. But from a young age, he displayed great independence of thought, whereas other students focused on the Confucian classics on which they would be tested in the imperial civil service exams. Jing Shengtan read lots of extracurricular books. Nonetheless, he passed the local level of the civil service exams and earned the degree of xiu cai at a young age. We're not sure how young precisely, possibly as young as 12, but no older than 18. And he managed to lose his xiu cai degree. You may wonder how that was possible. Well, at this time, during the late Ming, it wasn't enough for a scholar to earn a degree. The scholar had to go through periodic re-examination to demonstrate that he still qualified. And the way these exams were done was the examining officer would provide an essay prompt. The prompt was typically a quotation from one of the Confucian classics. The student had to recognize the allusion and recall its context, and then write an essay addressing the issue that the quotation was about. Jing Shengtan never took these exams very seriously, even though he was intelligent enough always to recognize the quotation and to be fully capable of writing an essay in response, he liked to make a mockery of the proceedings. One time, when he went in for re-examination, the essay prompt was a quotation from Mencius, Wu Si Shi Er Bu Dong Xing, literally, At 40, my heart ceased to move. Now, in Chinese, for one's heart to move means to be tempted, to be seduced in some way. So, Mencius was saying that by the age of 40, he could no longer be tempted. In response to this prompt, Jing Shengtan began his essay by describing a scene as though in a work of fiction. Amidst deserted mountaintops, there lie 10,000 ounces of gold, Beyond the veil of mist, there stands a beautiful woman. I ask, sir, whether your heart moves. Following that opening, Jing Shengtan wrote the character Dong to move 39 times. So, move, 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 etc. The examining officer was confused and called him up to ask what this was about. Jing Shengtan replied, well, 
At 40, we stop moving, right? The examining officer was so pissed off, he stripped Jing Shengtan of his rank of Xiu Cai. So that should give you a pretty good idea of just how little Jing Shengtan really cared about things like the civil service exam. And yet, some years later, Jing Shengtan went and took the exam again. This time, he answered the essay prompt seriously and easily won back his title of Xiu Cai. He didn't care about the title, and he never took the next level of the exams. He just wanted to prove to himself that he could do this, and very easily too, if he chose to. Such was the character of Jing Shengtan, the man. But why do we care? What did he do to deserve our attention? Well, as I said at the beginning, he was a literary critic. And he engaged in literary criticism in a way that seems obvious now, but was revolutionary at the time. Well, I say revolutionary, but again, just as Jing Shengtan served as a precursor of 20th century intellectuals, so Jing Shengtan had his predecessor as well in the form of the Ming Dynasty Mandarin, Li Zhi. Li Zhi had named what he considered the five greatest works of literature ever written. Three of these were uncontroversial, the historical records of Sima Qian, and the collected writings of the Tang poet Du Fu, and the Song Dynasty writer Su Shi. His fourth choice was a Ming Dynasty contemporary, Li Mengyang, now largely forgotten. And his final choice was the Ming Dynasty novel Shui Hu Zhuan, Water Margin, also translated as Outlaws of the Marsh, which we've previously talked about on this podcast. Today we're used to seeing Water Margin as one of the classics of Chinese literature. But remember, it was written in colloquial Chinese, not the respectable classical Chinese of the scholars. Not to mention it contained plenty of bad language, as well as a plot centered on violence and crime, subjects deemed unworthy. With Li Zhi in mind, Jing Shengtan named his own list of six greatest books ever written. Some of these were, again, hardly controversial, namely the Book of Zhuangzi, that text of Taoist philosophy, Li Sao, a book of poetry by the warring states poet and statesman Qu Yuan, and again, the historical records of Sima Qian and the collected poems of Du Fu. But then Jing Shengtan also included Water Margin, and finally, he included Xi Xiangqi, the story of the Western Wing, a Yuan Dynasty drama published around 1300. Just as Water Margin was not considered respectable because it was about criminals killing people, so the story of the Western Wing was considered borderline pornographic because it was about young lovers managing secret trysts despite parental disapproval. Jing Shengtan's choices 
and his arguments backing up his choices proved deeply influential, leading to our modern view of both of these works as classics. And he went deep in his criticism, writing extensive exegesis on poems and works of fiction. This kind of extensive interpretation was previously only seen with religious texts, like Buddhist sutras. He also famously liked to offer how he might have written something differently, from changing a single character in a line of poetry to suggesting vast changes. Basically, he was a great reader. Not only did he read lots of books, but he read them deeply and thought about them deeply. To borrow the title of a book by Professor Harold Bloom, Jing Shengtan was a man who taught the Chinese how to read and why. On the story of the Western Wing, Jing Shengtan defended the play's subject matter. There was no reason, he wrote, why you couldn't write about youthful romantic love. After all, the Shi Jing, the classic of poetry, which was a poetry anthology from the spring and autumn era, and deemed a classic since the Han Dynasty, included love poems. So you absolutely could produce a great work of literature on the subject of romantic love, as long as your intent isn't pornographic. In this connection, I am reminded of two things. One, that thing James Joyce said, true art hangs in suspension between didacticism and pornography. And two, the fact that Shakespeare, around this exact time, also made romantic love a respectable subject of that most dignified of Western dramatic forms, the tragedy, through, of course, Romeo and Juliet. Critiquing the story of the Western Wing, Jing Shengtan also engaged in what was basically source criticism, something we're more familiar with in studies of the Bible. By analyzing the dramatic structure as well as the language, Jing Shengtan demonstrated that Act 5 of the play must have been a later edition by a different author. Although his younger contemporary, the dramatist and novelist Li Yu, disagreed with much of what Jing Shengtan said about the story of the Western Wing, believing him to have lacked the understanding of a genuine man of the theater, Li Yu also deeply respected Jing Shengtan and commended his notes to all readers. Perhaps Jing Shengtan's most famous feat of criticism was what he did with Water Margin. We know that it was in or around 1641 that he focused on this novel and set down his thoughts. First, he compared the novel to the historical records of Sima Tian. This comparison already makes a serious and important point, not so much about the novel as about the work of history, i.e. that a great work of history must also be a great work of literature. A moment's thought tells us this is undoubtedly so. 
the histories of Herodotus and the Peloponnesian War of Thucydides aren't great works of history just because they tell us what happened. They're great because they analyze the psychology and motivations of the personalities involved, like characters in a novel or a play. They're great because the storytelling moves us through universal principles like setup and payoff. It has indeed even been noted that the histories of Herodotus can be seen as a Greek tragedy, whose tragic hero is none other than the Persian Empire. Qing Shengtan thought Water Margin was even better than the historical records. A book of history was limited by what happened in real life, whereas fiction enjoyed the liberty of artistic license. Qing Shengtan particularly praised the character portraits of Water Margin. A quick reminder as to what the novel is about. Set during the Song Dynasty, but obviously reflecting social issues from the Ming Dynasty, Water Margin traces how 108 different characters, one by one, end up becoming bandits and joining the outlaw gang based on Mount Liang in the middle of the wetlands of the province of Shandong. So, as a matter of literary achievement, the way each of these 108 protagonists, plus their antagonists and other ancillary characters, all get distinct portrayals and often speak in their own conversational styles, is truly astounding. Although some of the 108 characters are already criminals from the outset, most of these men and women there are a handful of women among them, begin as law-abiding citizens and even soldiers. Corrupt officials, or the unscrupulous rich, try to take advantage of them and persecute them in various ways, and end up forcing them to become outlaws. Qing Shengtan does not endorse the criminal activities of the so-called heroes of water margin, But he argues that some of the most striking characters among them exhibit the highest ideals of Confucian ethics, as spelled out by Mencius. A righteous man, a Junzi, Mencius wrote, should be such that wealth cannot make him prostitute himself, poverty cannot cause him to abandon his commitments, and threats and violence cannot force him to bend the knee. And so, Qing Shengtan explained to the late Ming and early Qing readers, Water Margin was a novel of social criticism, social protest. What kind of world must this be? How unjust must China be if those who actually come closest to living up to Confucian ethical ideals have no choice but to become outlaws. In contrast, the worst and most corrupt men in the story all become high officials. After chapter 70 out of 120, Water Margin takes a sharp turn. By chapter 70, all 108 criminal heroes 
have gathered in one spot and joined the same gang. After that, the story centers around the government's attempt to subdue them and eventually to offer them an amnesty. The outlaws end up accepting the amnesty offered to them by some of the same corrupt officials who persecuted them in the first place. And the condition of the amnesty is that they then have to join the army and help the Song government fight both external foes and internal rebels, not so different from themselves. Most of the outlaws end up dying in battle for their country, or get murdered by, again, the same corrupt officials. Jing Shengtan didn't like this ending. He thought it was too sad. So he produced his own edition of Water Margin, which ended after chapter 70. He wrote a preface, falsely under the name of the probable original author, Shinayan, claiming that the original text only had 70 chapters, that the later chapters were an unauthorized edition. Then he wrote a new ending to be tacked onto the end of chapter 70 to give it a sense of completion. I don't personally agree with Jing Shengtan's choice here. If the book ends with chapter 70, then it's a story of liberation, with these outlaws all becoming free men living outside of polite society, but free to do what they pleased at the end of the story. But then it's no longer a tragedy, which I think was the original authorial intent. With the story ending with chapter 120, with most of the protagonists violently killed, Water Margin gives us a pitiless portrait of an unjust world from which there is ultimately very little chance of escape. That being said, others have agreed with Jing Shengtan, including no less than the great 20th century scholar Hu Shi. And readers of the 120 chapter version of Water Margin, including myself, still have to admit that the first 70 chapters are a lot more fun than the later chapters. Indeed, the Jing Shengtan edition of Water Margin became the more popular version for the next 300 years, even the standard edition. Even now, plenty of people prefer the Jing Shengtan version, even knowing about the longer, more complete text. As noted, Jing Shengtan died in 1661, the 18th year of the reign of Emperor Shunzhi. This was how it happened. The 18th year of Shunzhi was the last year of that emperor's reign, and in fact, he died early in the year. News of his death reached Suzhou, where Jing Shengtan lived, by February. Only a few months earlier, a new county magistrate had taken up his position in the area. And basically nobody liked him. Upon hearing news of Emperor Shunzhi's death, the local literati 
gathered under the pretext of mourning the late emperor, but really it was a kind of political demonstration, calling for the firing of this magistrate. By the way, protesting under the guise of mourning a recently dead political leader became a Chinese tradition. See, for example, the death of Hu Yaobang in 1989. Now, Jing Shengtan was among the protesters. I have seen sources variously saying that Jing Shengtan was one of the leaders of the protest, or that he was only tangentially involved. Either way, although gatherings of the educated set, such as this, were common during the Ming Dynasty, the new Qing Dynasty, perhaps because it began as a foreign invading force, did not take kindly to the demonstration. The governor had 18 of the leading figures arrested, and he ordered not only their execution, but also the exile and enslavement of their family members. Poor Jing Shengtan was one of the 18. They say that as the prison guards pushed him onto the execution ground, Jing Shengtan left us with these last words. To have your head cut off and to have your family enslaved is surely the worst outcome in life that a man can come to. And yet I... Jing Shengtan, have managed to reach this point without even trying. What a funny thing life is. In the centuries after his death, Jing Shengtan's work revolutionized the way the Chinese approached their own literature, paving the way for the early 20th century scholars and writers who gave us all permission to write like moderns. One of these writers, Zhou Zuoren, once said, the number one spot in fiction criticism of course belongs to Jing Shengtan. All this from an obviously flawed, obviously kind of weird, and obviously very funny man who enjoyed screwing around when taking civil service exams. If he were alive today to know what kind of influence he has had on Chinese literature, I imagine Jing Shengtan would again marvel what a funny thing life is. This has been MOTG. Thank you for listening.